Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. It is a group of diseases involving abnormal cell growth with the potential to invade and spread to other parts of the body. Cancer, facts over fear, tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Kelly Evans-Hullinger, Prairie Doc, and host for tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program celebrating 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Joining us tonight via Zoom is Dr. Heidi McKean from Avera Medical Group Oncology and Hematology in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome, Dr. McKean. Thanks for joining us virtually on this snowy <laughs> evening here. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're telling me you are from Lenox, so a South Dakotan and been practicing in Sioux Falls for about 10 years now, is that right? That's right. Yeah. I am Lenox girl and went to Augustana and then USD Med School and then left for about six years to go to Mayo Clinic and do residency and fellowship over there. And yeah. so came here in about 2011. And so 10 years. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you as an oncologist do day to day. What's your role in the treatment or diagnosis and treatment of different cancers? So I'm trained in both hematology and medical oncology. What I actually do for the most part is medical oncology. Mm -hmm. So I see patients that are diagnosed with, with mostly solid tumor malignancies. So anything from breast or lung or colon cancers, they come to me typically with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so it's my job to explain what that means, to figure out how advanced that cancer is, mm -hmm. to talk to them about treatment options, and to be honest with them about prognosis and what the goal of treatment is. Mm -hmm. A lot of my time is in clinic, mm -hmm. um, but I do go back and forth to the hospital as well if patients get admitted or if there's patients over there with new diagnoses, then I go and spend time with the patient and their family and explain. Sure. And some of the things that you don't personally do, but you probably work closely with are the surgeons and radiation oncologists who are also treating cancer depending on the specific type and location. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a big team, multidisciplinary team for sure. Yeah. And those are some of my favorite times when we, we get together in a big conference room and we talk mm -hmm. about cases and make sure that we uh, get the treatment plan right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, we look forward to answering your questions about cancer. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. Each night we work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time we have for the episode. We do sometimes receive more questions than we can cover in that time limit. So we apologize if we do not get to your question but we encourage you to ask early to give us the best chance to answer. To encourage your questions earlier, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Dot gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. 
Your question will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. Heidi, let's start with just a little bit of information about like how you go about forming a treatment plan. So when you're seeing a new patient and they've had this diagnosis of a tumor, we presume that it was maybe found on imaging and then a biopsy has been done. What kinds of things go in, what information is important to you when you're making recommendations about the best way to treat a specific cancer? Great question. So I really need to know the story first. Mm -hmm. How did we get to that point? And I wanna know a little bit more or a lot about that patient. Mm -hmm. How functional are they? What's their day-to-day -day life like? It helps me formulate a plan of how aggressive I should be with further testing and how aggressive we should be with treatment. And so getting to know that patient sitting in front of them, get hands-on exam, mm -hmm. it helped me understand where we're at from a starting point. And then really importantly, I need to make sure that I get the diagnosis correct. So talking mm -hmm. with that pathologist that read the biopsy and also ordering some testing. Mm -hmm. I need to know if it's on you know, CT or PET scan, where else is the cancer? So that we know very clearly, is this a curable situation or is this not a curable, but maybe a palliative situation where mm -hmm. I can still help to control the cancer and help them do as well as they can for as long as they can. So certainly getting to know the patient situation, ordering the right tests so that I know if this is curable or not and what my goal is. Mm -hmm. And every single day that I'm in my clinic, I have open what's called our NCCN guidelines. What that stands for is National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines. It's really our playbook. It's mm -hmm. our standard of care that's based on all the research studies over the years that have been done so that I know what the best evidence says that I should be doing. Mm -hmm. We can't make this up, it's too important. Yeah, so. yeah. And as much as probably any field of medicine, I'm always impressed at our oncologists because the work that you have to do to stay up to date with the speed at which this field of medicine has changed even, even just the last 10 years has been pretty profound, right? I mean, so many new drug therapies for certain types of cancer. How do you manage that? It is hard, mm -hmm. you know, and that's part of why a lot of us have kind of pulled back from doing everything, mm -hmm. hematology, which is the blood disorders and cancers and, and solid tumor malignancy. A lot of us have pulled back from doing everything to try to focus a little more sure. um, and, and try to keep up because what ends up happening is that there's so many new drugs. There's mm -hmm. so many new studies coming through that it's incredibly hard to read every single thing. Yeah. Our National Oncology Organization does a nice job of at least distilling mm -hmm. daily emails, you know, weekly publications to us so that we can at least hit the high points of what is practice changing. Mm -hmm. And so for a busy mom like me, a lot of that means that after the kids are in bed, I'm reading the updates so that I know what's changed and, and what's new on the market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are getting some uh, questions from viewers, so let's get to some of those things. Um, let's say an emailer asked, a man was just told he has a low-grade prostate cancer. What can you tell him about that diagnosis? I think this is a good example of how cancer is just not one, one disease, right? Every, every type of cancer has its own trends, and so prostate cancer is often low-grade. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's different. I mean, years ago, everybody used to get a PSA and everybody used to act on it. And, mm -hmm. and now that's different. 
um, as it should be. Mm -hmm. So low grade, um, I want to just explain that there's a difference between grade and stage. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Low grade means underneath the microscope, this cancer is a cancer, but it does not look very aggressive. Mm -hmm. And so that means then that it should not move very fast. It shouldn't get bigger and, and, and spread very fast. And so low grade is something that sometimes patients just live with. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily need to do any treatment, especially considering the patient's age, other yeah. illnesses that they may have, how aggressive they want to be. A lot of times a low-grade cancer is something that we watch mm -hmm. and only do something about if it starts to transform into something a little bit more aggressive or start to spread, mm -hmm. which a lot of times it doesn't. So low-grade uh, malignancies are, are better situations than something that's called high-grade or really fast-growing. Right, right. And so in a lot of cases, a, a great choice for someone with prostate cancer is what we call active surveillance, especially especially in older patients and, and you know, stuff that we see pretty commonly. Absolutely. Uh, um, we had a question about um, if there's a difference between a bone marrow transplant and a stem cell transplant. Can you talk about those terms a little bit? Absolutely. So bone marrow transplant and stem cell transplant, same idea. It's just mm -hmm. a different way of getting the cells that we would use for treatment. So for patients that have either a leukemia, which is a cancer of the bone marrow, or a lymphoma, a cancer of a lot of the lymph nodes. Um, some of those patients would be treated with a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that we are trying to take parts of the bone marrow, the really early cells that are able to form new healthy cells. We try to extract part of the bone marrow from the patient or from a donor. Mm -hmm. And literally, you actually, if you're doing a bone marrow transplant, you go for most of the bone marrow in the pelvis. In an mm -hmm. adult, that's where most of our active bone marrow is in the pelvis. And so you would you would typically be put to sleep if you're the donor, and they would numb up your back of your pelvis and go in over and over with the needle to take pieces of the bone marrow for, for then processing so that that could be put back in at a later time or given to another patient. As opposed to if it's a stem cell transplant, then we don't have to do the numb you up, do biopsies over and over in the pelvis. We can actually give you a medicine mm -hmm. to just stimulate the bone marrow to release some of these early stem cells that can populate the bone marrow and make new cells. That's a little bit uh, more I don't know if humane is the right word, but if I was going to be the donor, I think I would opt for the stem cell <laughs> just because it's a it's a medicine that stimulates the similar process and you can mm -hmm. still collect the cells without having to go through the bone marrow biopsy over and over. Mm -hmm. All in all, if anyone ever has the opportunity to be a donor for a blood cancer like that, though, a pretty minor thing compared to being like an organ donor for a kidney or something like that. I mean, it could be a really Great. minor procedure for a life-saving treatment for someone else, right? And we're always looking for, I mean, if it was me or my family or my friend, of course, you know, mm -hmm. all of us would hopefully consider signing up for Be The Match mm -hmm. to have more options for patients because it is, it's a life-changing procedure for some, life-saving procedure yeah. for some. Yeah, great. Um, a simple question, but a great one. Why is radiation therapy used on some but not all cancer patients? 
That's a really good question. Mm -hmm. So radiation treatment is uh, given by my colleagues and how I explain it to patients is I am a chemotherapy doctor, so I do the medicines that try to circulate all throughout the body and try to get wherever the cancer is. The radiation doctors would have the ability to come up with a plan where they aim a high beam of energy just right at that tumor, uh, trying to kill the, the cancer cells that way. So it's very much a local control mm -hmm. treatment plan. And so if the cancer is localized, then that is an appropriate plan that we should at least consider. Should we do radiation to the tumor and save the patient potentially having to go through chemotherapy that I would give that'll cause other side effects and make them sick? Um, there's also a, a time and a place for the radiation doctors to help even if the cancer has spread from where it started and it's starting to cause, for example, pain in a bone. Mm -hmm. then a lot of times the radiation doctors can aim right at that tumor in, an, in the bone and help with symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, trying to kill the tumor in the bone and help with the pain. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a difference between localizing the treatment with radiation, just aiming right at the spot of the tumor versus chemotherapy, which again are the medicines that circulate all through your blood system to try to get to the cancer wherever it may be. Sure. Uh, we had a caller from Sioux Falls wondering what kind of cancers are the most common cancers? And then he adds, what, what are the most effective treatment for cancer, be it surgery, radiation, which is a more complicated question, but what are the most common cancers that we see? Yeah, so for women, the most common is certainly breast cancer, mm -hmm. um, colon cancer, lung cancer, are the three most common. For men, prostate cancer, mm -hmm. lung cancer, colon cancer. And so if you match up that list, then lung cancer shows up in mm -hmm. both. Um, and that's also a very um, difficult to treat cancer if it has spread throughout the body. So mm -hmm. most common female breast, mm -hmm. colon's common, but lung is really um, becoming a, a, a major problem in both men and women, not only being a common cancer, mm -hmm. but a, a, a cause of cancer death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good. There's a segment on lung cancer screening for the right patients later in the show. Treatment, meaning if surgery or other treatments are most appropriate, really depends on the specifics of that individual's cancer, like you talked about earlier, if there's evidence of spread or not. Yeah. Right. I, you know, as a chemo doctor, we're the first to admit that the best way to cure a cancer is if you can remove it, mm -hmm. if you can have surgery and cut it out that's still the best way to cure a cancer. Mm -hmm. Of course, not always is that possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where radiation to a tumor that can't be quite removed mm -hmm. or where we didn't get it all out would be helpful. And then chemotherapy to do what I sometimes call is uh, a mop-up job, mm -hmm. killing microscopic disease left behind um, to try to help go for a cure. Or if the cancer has already spread from where it started and it's a stage four or metastatic situation, then a lot of times it's it's in my world where we're, we're doing sure. different medicines to try to kill as much of that cancer as we can, control it for as long as we can mm -hmm. and help the patient do as well as they can. Yeah, great. Well, for people with a history of smoking, having a CT screening done to detect lung cancer might be something to consider. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with a diagnostic radiologist about the screening. Dr. Daniel Sova recommends a specific population be screened for lung cancer, including patients ages 50 to 80 who have a significant smoking history. And by that I mean they have a 20-pack year history of smoking. And what that means is that they've averaged a smoking a pack a day 
uh, for up to 20 years or the equivalent of that. So they could have smoked half a pack for 40 years to get to that mark. So those people would meet the requirement to be screened with a low dose CT. Dr. Sova says the CT scan is a simple process. We don't need to start an IV or anything invasive. So they just come and lay down on the table. They've got to do a simple breath hold for maybe five to 10 seconds. So it's actually a pretty quick exam. Dr. Sova says they use a low dose CT scan done on a yearly basis. We also don't want to give the patient too much radiation over their lifetime. We found a Goldilocks zone for the amount of radiation we can give to these patients without over-radiating them while still getting the benefit of early cancer detection. Early detection for cancer is the key to the best outcome. If we catch cancer when it's stage one disease, meaning that it's confined to the nodule or cancer right in the lung where we see it on a CT, we have up to a 90% survival rate. Whereas if we wait until we're symptomatic, oftentimes the disease has spread distantly. At that point, your survival rate drops from 80 to 90% down to 5% or something around there. A patient with a positive screen may have to undergo some additional testing, including a PET CT, where nodules are more closely examined. Typically, cancers have a higher metabolic rate than non-cancerous nodules. And if that portion is positive, then we may have to sample the nodule with a biopsy, uh, which is where we place a needle into the nodule and then send it to pathology to see if there are any cancerous cells under the microscope. He says the risks of getting the screening done are minimal, and it is crucial for early detection of cancer. Yeah, the radiation is really the big one. There's not really another risk per se. And, you know, if you get an indeterminate screen or a positive screen, you know, it causes patient anxiety because they're stuck waiting to find out if they have lung cancer. But um, in my opinion, the knowing is better than the not knowing. And the key is really early detection as with any screening program. information. Thanks for that, Dan. Um, we have a whole slew of questions, Dr. McKean, so I think we'll just start slogging through them. We have an emailer who asked, a woman was prescribed a cream for cancer on her nose. It is crusting up as it was supposed to, but should she put some vitamin E on it or leave it alone? Probably a question for the dermatologist, I suppose, huh? <laughs> I think, though, that I wouldn't necessarily add a whole lot of other topicals without checking with that dermatologist yeah. first because the, the crusting up is actually what you're you're looking for. Yeah. It means that it's working. Looking to kill those ca cancer cells, right? right. Um, an emailer asked, what are some of the best things we can do to minimize our risk for cancer? What do we have control yes. over? Because there's plenty of things we don't have control over, our genetics and, and some of these random events that lead to cancer. But what what things can people do? So I think the, the main messages that we would want to continue to have out there would be avoid things that we know are toxic. I mean, mm -hmm. don't, don't smoke. I mean, if you do smoke, try, please try to, to stop smoking as soon as possible. A healthy life. I mean, mm -hmm. it does not always prevent cancer, but if you right. are um, living a healthy life, meaning eating 
healthy diet, lots of protein. I always think whole grains are better than anything white, mm -hmm. uh, lots of vegetables, uh, some fruits as well. Trying to keep your weight from being in that obese category is actually really important. Mm -hmm. We know that patients that are obese have a higher risk of cancer. There's a lot to say about being obese and having high insulin levels and, and where that could lead with your risk. So. Mm -hmm. Um, other things to stay away too. I mean, avoid a lot of excessive alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, exercise is very important to keep the, the muscle mass uh, as good as it can be. And so those are some of the things that you have control over. There's a lot of theories out there. Should we mm -hmm. be eating um, less processed food? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, there's also a lot of uh, trends out there on the internet that I'm not sure what to say about. I mean, yeah. everybody uses cell phones. What, what does that mean for brain tumors? I don't know. I mean, right. until we know that better, I think that the main messages that we can be confident about are avoid the toxins like mm -hmm. smoking and alcohol and lead that healthy lifestyle. Please try to avoid from becoming very obese. Yeah, good. Um, we had an emailer who asked, I had a malignant cyst taken off my vocal cords 14 months ago. Do I have to worry about a return cyst on the vocal cords or cancers showing up somewhere else? Typically, if it was just a cyst on the vocal cord, whether benign or malignant, that does need to just be monitored. Mm -hmm. And the best uh, doctor to monitor that, of course, would be the ear, nose, and throat doctor. So if it was confined to the vocal cord, I would not be highly worried that mm -hmm. that would show up somewhere else or that they'd be at high risk for another type of cancer. It also depends, of course, on the history. Right. If, if there's a, a large smoking or alcohol history, then, of course, have to be really careful to monitor that whole tract that could have gotten exposed mm -hmm. to those toxins. And so ear, nose, and throat is definitely somebody to stick with. Yeah, good. Is light chain amyloidosis considered cancer? It's, it's, you know, that's a sophisticated question. That is very specific. <laughs> I'm impressed. So light chain amyloidosis is an uncommon um, condition that I would actually consider in the malignancy category, it's mm -hmm. it's different than the typical colon and breast cancers where the cancer starts in one organ and can move throughout the body. Uh, amyloidosis is a rare type of condition where uh, the proteins are, are, are not folded correctly. And those proteins can deposit in your organs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can deposit in anything from the heart to the liver, to the mm -hmm. kidneys, to even up into the brain and the nerves. And so, uncommon condition definitely treated mm -hmm. with some of the ways that we treat other cancers mm -hmm. such as we sometimes use some chemotherapy drugs we sometimes put those patients through a transplant mm -hmm. where they're given um, some some early healthy cells to try to repopulate and so i would definitely put it in the malignancy category mm -hmm. it's just not quite the same as a solid tumor malignancy that that spreads all over the place, mm -hmm. but it is in that category. Yeah, great. Um, we had a resident from Volga wondering about longer Hans cell histiocytosis. They had a family member who was diagnosed and was told it was very rare. So what is, what is that disease? Yeah, it is very rare. Mm -hmm. I actually had a patient when I was uh, training over at, at Mayo um, mm -hmm. in fellowship, I had a patient with longer Hans. So uh, definitely uh, again in the category of a processing error in the body. So, so the way that your body handles inflammation and corrects errors and and stays healthy, there, there's 
there's something wrong in that process. And so a lot of times the, the patients will have abnormal lesions show up, for example, in the lungs or other parts of the body where it's, it's not, again, quite like a lung cancer mm -hmm. that will spread to different organs and, and really take a patient's life potentially quickly. But it is a processing error. I mean, these patients have these strange lesions that you can't quite get rid of completely, but there are some advances lately where you can at least try to control them for a while. Mm -hmm. But yeah, only met one patient in my life, so, <laughs> uh, and that was over in Rochester. Got it. Um, we had a call from Sioux Falls wondering why they were denied from donating blood because of their history of malignant melanoma. Um, they had uh, melanoma removed 40 years ago, but still unable to donate blood. Can you explain why this is, why there's some exclusion to donation for patients with history of cancer? So that surprises me a little bit that if it was a 40 years mm -hmm. ago history that they were denied, because a lot of times, a lot of the blood banks will say, please do not uh, accept a donation from a patient if they've had a malignancy in the past five years, for okay. example. And so that surprises me a little bit. Um, there are advances in my world coming where we're trying to figure out if we can actually detect circulating tumor DNA, by mm -hmm. the way. So that isn't ready for prime time. But what that means is that could we do a blood test on a person that has had a cancer in the past and detect if there's any sign, not actually a tumor cell, but even the, the parts that would make up a cancer cell in that body to see if they're at risk for recurrence that's not ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. If that is, that might totally change the blood bank situation. Right. But for, for right now, I think if it's a five-year rule as far as I'm aware. Let's maybe check back on that. Um, we had a caller ask, what is marginal zone cancer? Marginal zone is typically a lymphoma that patients can get, not uh, one of the most common types of lymphoma. It can actually start in lymph nodes. It can also start in organs such as a spleen, mm -hmm. for example. And it tends to be one of the slow to, to moderate growing lymphomas that is treated with um, either removal of the spleen or sometimes chemotherapy drugs and some oral agents as well. So kind of think of it as a slower growing lymphoma that can be treated um, and usually is not real aggressive. Okay. We had a caller from Brookings wonder if cancer is not treated, will it always spread to the lymph nodes? Good question. It's hard True to answer. answer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, different cancers have such different tendencies. So there's yeah. a lot of specifics that go into that, right? There are. Yeah. You know, that is a lot of times the spread pattern that we worry about. Mm -hmm. You know, if a patient has a breast cancer that's untreated, then we're worried that the next move that that cancer is going to make is into the armpit lymph nodes. And then if it gets through the lymph nodes and it gets into the bloodstream, where else is it going to show up? That's mm -hmm. the danger is that it's going to show up somewhere else, like mm -hmm. the liver, the bones, the brain. Yeah. And so that is the, the spread pattern in, I would say, general that mm -hmm. we worry about from where the cancer started to the lymph nodes and then into the blood to spread mm -hmm. throughout the body. But you're right, Kelly, it's, 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 it's almost um, so specific for every cancer that we could answer that differently for lung, colon, right. lymphoma. Yeah, yeah, great. This is a great question. We had a caller from Pierre wondering how genomic testing has changed how doctors treat cancer patients. Tell us what that means, genomic testing, and um, how you use it in, in your daily practice. Yeah, you know, 
two parts to it actually as well. So 10 years ago when I came, uh, we did some referrals of patients to our genetic counselor. So I'm mm -hmm. talk about that part first, where we talk about, uh, did this cancer come about in this patient because they might've inherited a gene from mom or dad that was faulty, that mm -hmm. had an error. And is that what set them up for uh, risk of cancer? And could they have then passed that gene on to their children and grandchildren? Mm -hmm. And so we send a lot more patients than we ever used to to our uh, genetic counselor to try to talk about that, map out the family history, see if there's value in doing one of our many panels, mm -hmm. which means just a blood test, to look and see if we have some genes that are abnormal or mutated because we actually have some treatments for patients, for example, that have a BRCA mutation. We have treatments for that now. We didn't used to, mm -hmm. but we have some oral treatments that can help us incredibly treat those type of cancers. So we wanna know if something's traveling through the family. That's one part of it. The other part that's really advanced as well is actually checking the tumor. Mm -hmm. If we can get a piece of that tumor, we, we have to, of course, to get the diagnosis, we have to have a biopsy, but but if we have some extra tissue left, then we want to try to actually test that tissue. For right now, we usually send that tissue off to a various company, you know, there's multiple options, but what happens is that they go way down into the DNA level of that tissue. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to figure out again, what went wrong? Why mm -hmm. did this happen? What mutations are in those cells that carried on from all of the one cell to the next? And if we can identify a mutation that we actually have a treatment for, then that's what we aim at. Mm -hmm. Because Joe's cancer is gonna respond better to that treatment than Ron's well, because mm -hmm. he has the right mutation and we have a treatment for that. Mm -hmm. So nowadays we get a report back about two or three weeks later where there's just a lot of mutations listed. We don't have treatments for all of them, but we mm -hmm. do have treatments for some of those. And so if we can use that information about that person's specific tumor to pick the treatment, Hugely helpful. Yeah. Hugely helpful. Great. You may have heard about immunotherapy to treat cancer, but another new approach is cell therapy. Oncologist Dr. Benjamin Solomon tells us about the drug trials of both of these therapies in this piece from Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael. Whenever there's a, a, a new development in oncology, um, then there's kind of reverberation through the uh, the, the research pathways that are that are um, being explored. And so, you know, right now what we're really seeing is a lot of studies that are looking at patients who have already received immunotherapy and maybe that stopped working or ways that we can maybe modify or improve upon immunotherapy. Uh, a lot of targeted therapy uh, options where a patient may qualify for a particular therapy based on molecular testing of their cancer to determine um, what really is making that cancer grow and how we can target that. So we have a lot of trials in, in those areas. And what we're really focusing on in our program in particular is trying to as much as possible have a study that a patient could enroll in. Um, any patient who maybe has a cancer that uh, is being actively treated or, or is at risk of recurrence of that cancer, that we hopefully have some kind of a study that we can offer that patient because we feel like it's important to offer the most cutting edge therapy that we can, but also at the same time sort of advance the science. Although not all cancers have been proven to be effectively treated while using immunotherapy, there's a growing list of cancers that can be treated using this method. Now, there's a newcomer on the scene. 
uh, completely different way of treating patients is, is cellular therapies, where we're really not using a medicine per se, um, but an actual living cell that sometimes is harvested from the patient and modified. Other times it's an off-the-shelf product that's grown in a lab, but it's actually a living cell that can actually impact cancer. And so some of the newer studies that are kind of exciting are cellular therapy studies. According to Solomon, the most common misconceptions about clinical trials are that patients are going to be used as guinea pigs. However, this is not the case. Many clinical trials that are well-designed are a great option for potentially managing their cancer. A question that I get a lot from my patients is, you know, what can I do to help manage my cancer, whether it be diet or those kinds of things? For me, good nutrition is really important. We don't really completely frankly, understand how to manage the diet in the best way possible. And that's an area of research as well. In fact, we've been looking at some clinical trial options specifically regarding modified diets, because that's a really common question. There's a lot of misconceptions out there. There's some kind of junk science out there that people have to be careful of when they're talking about, you know, managing their diet with their cancer. That's one thing. And the other is physical activity. People tend to like to think if they're not feeling well, that they need to rest. In most cases, the opposite is true. You know, our bodies are a little bit of a use it or lose it kind of a situation. And so if you, if, if we back off on our physical activity because we don't feel as well, sometimes that can lead to a downward spiral. So I really encourage people to be as physically active as they can as well. Great information from Dr. Solomon, your partner there. What percentage of patients in your clinic do you suppose are enrolled in clinical trial at a, at a given time? It's, I assume it's not small. I think we always want it to be more, but yeah. you're right, it's not small. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I don't know the percentage off the top of my mm -hmm. head, Kelly, but I, I would think that at least, you know, we try to aim for somewhere, you know, 20%, 25%, sure. something like that would be a good goal for us. Yeah. Not always do we have that high of a number, but mm -hmm. but I do think that it's always something that we're trying to improve on. Sure. And we are, you know, we track our numbers and it looks like it's getting better all the time. We want those cutting edge options for our patients yeah. here. Yeah. And from what I've seen just in patients that I take care of that are also your patients, most of those clinical trials, you know, I, I, I don't want people to find that scary. The control arm, which is the, the arm that's not getting the experimental therapy, generally is getting the standard of care without the experimental therapy. Is that generally true? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I, we would try to reassure a patient that we would never ever want to deny them what standard of care right. is. So they should at least get standard of care or standard of care plus something else. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be really unethical to just just give them a placebo pill. That's not right. something, that's not even a trial that we would want to open for our patients or, or right. want to put them on because I wouldn't want to be on that trial. Right. So I wouldn't want the patients on it. Yeah, good. We'll get back to some questions. Um, we have had an emailer ask um, that the, the person is 83 years old and recently had a positive Cologuard test. Um, she's having some symptoms like weakness, fatigue, and some un unintentional weight loss. She asks if it would be a good idea to have a second Cologuard test before having a colonoscopy since she is over 75. 
I would say, depending on that her state of health, probably needs to move on to the colonoscopy, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And I realize that I'm biased because I take care of a lot of patients with colon cancer. I think if you have a, a, a cologuard that's positive mm -hmm. and some symptoms to go along with it, then I would definitely encourage the patient to move on to the colonoscopy because even if you repeat the cologuard, I don't know if that yeah. I trust it because you still have the first one that's positive right. and some symptoms that need to be worked up. Right. I'm not aware of a situation in which a cologuard is actually recommended to be done a repeated time. It's it's purely a screening test. And frankly, if she's having symptoms, maybe wasn't the the greatest choice in the first place. So if, if she's agree. okay with it, probably move on with that next recommendation. Uh, we had a Facebook viewer who said his wife was diagnosed with DCIS in her latest breast biopsy and also had two recent biopsies with ALH. Can you explain the treatment for these? So can you expound on those acronyms for us and answer yeah. his question? So DCIS and ALH. Um, so the first one and, mm -hmm. and frankly the second one. So ductal carcinoma in site two mm -hmm. is really thought of as more of a pre-invasive type mm -hmm. of growth that happens in the breast. So it's not the invasive breast cancer mm -hmm. that we worry about. But it is a growth that if left alone and not removed or treated could turn into an invasive breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes these lesions are small, sometimes these lesions are fairly large, mm -hmm. but if it has not broken through what we call that basement membrane and really mm -hmm. invaded the breast, that's still a better situation than the typical breast cancer. And so ductal carcinoma in situ, again, kind of a pre-invasive um, some people call it a cancer, but I call mm -hmm. it a pre-invasive lesion in the breast that needs to be removed before it turns into an invasive cancer. Surgery, sometimes radiation. Not often do we have to give the patient anything more than that, but there's an occasional patient that seems like they had a lot of the DCIS mm -hmm. or, or some high-risk features, then we'll give them some pills to try to prevent more lesions from showing up. Mm -hmm. Similar with um, atypical lobular hyperplasia, mm -hmm. just a little bit different part of the breast. Um, as far as uh, what the what that structure in the breast actually does but similar situation where the cells were just getting abnormal mm -hmm. on the spectrum of completely normal cells to something getting a little bit more abnormal and if allowed to go unchecked could someday turn into a breast cancer mm -hmm. that's where i put the atypical lobular hyperplasia they were just getting a little abnormal mm -hmm. we like those cells to be known about we like those cells to be removed before either alh or DCIS gets the chance to turn into an invasive cancer that's more worrisome. Sure. All right. Um, we had a caller from Lennox who asked, is a PSA test for males still done on routine checkups? You alluded a little bit to this when we talked about prostate cancer, right? That's changed. It's really changed. Yeah. And and I think that's appropriate. I mean, I'm curious to hear your thoughts too, yeah. Kelly, but I, I think that um, the PSA was so routine in mm -hmm. the past, and what ended up happening is that um, not all elevated PSAs actually are associated with cancer, right? They can just be associated with an enlarged prostate. So mm -hmm. you end up putting patients through a lot of biopsies, sometimes right. with complications, sometimes finding these lesions that, like we talked about early on, are low grade. Mm -hmm. That's probably never going to hurt the patient. Right. You know, they would they would live years and they would pass on from something else and not from the prostate cancer. And so, I'm actually okay with that. We got away from mm -hmm. screening everybody with PSAs all the time and acting on every single one of them. Mm -hmm. I think what's more appropriate now is for the patient and the doctor to have a conversation about should we even 
as the PSA. Yeah. What are we going to do with that result, right? right. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't order a test unless we're actually going to know what we're going to do with the result. Um, are we going to go down the road of biopsying? Are we mm -hmm. interested in any sort of treatment? How are you going to handle the anxiety of a potential elevated PSA sure. or a potential low-grade prostate cancer that mm -hmm. we know we're just going to kind of sit on? Right. I, I don't know. I'm curious how you Yeah, I, your I, I would say it's really individualized, and I have a lot of patients who are surprised to hear that. Maybe that was something that they did pretty routinely with their physician 10 years ago, but guidelines have changed just based on the mounting evidence that we had that routine PSAs in everybody probably didn't prevent death, um, like which is our main goal with cancer screening, right? Um, so I, for me, it's an individualized conversation. There are some people out there, maybe based on family history, or again, just their own personal worries and threshold for those things that we make a decision to do it every year. I would say most of my patients choose not to when we talk about it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, very good. We had an emailer who asked, is 10 years between colonoscopies too long? So for, <laughs> that's a load, little bit of a loaded question Fair for enough. somebody that sees a lot of um, colon cancer. So, so the true answer is for the general population, 10 years is still okay. Yeah. If yep. you don't have a, a first degree relative with colon cancer mm -hmm. or a personal history yourself, 10 years is still okay. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, if there's ever a history in yourself or a first degree relative of multiple polyps or large polyps, then I, uh, that schedule should get tightened up. Mm -hmm. And then um, if you've ever had a colon cancer, for sure, we don't let you go right. beyond three to five years between the screening colonoscopies. Yeah. And there's even some more rare syndromes, of course, out there that are not common, but are, are out there where uh, a Lynch syndrome, um, sure. for example, that's a yearly colonoscopy. That's not common, but yeah. And um, I'll just take an opportunity for a plug that we have changed our screening recommendations to start at age 45 instead of age 50 just over these last six months uh, because of epidemiologic data. So a good reminder for you 45 to 50 year olds to talk to your primary care providers about that. Um, we had a viewer on Facebook ask if someone had appendix cancer and it was all removed, should they have, they asked about a PET scan, but I suppose any other follow-up. Depends on, uh, surprisingly, there's multiple types of appendix cancer, mm. actually. Mm -hmm. So there's some very low grade that basically need a surgery and they'll likely never bother the patient again. Mm -hmm. There's some higher grade lesions, which means they're more aggressive. They act a lot more like a colon cancer, which is what the appendix is attached to. Um, and so those patients, we worry a little bit more about potentially a recurrence. I would say though that a PET scan is not always the best choice sure. for some of those bowel cancers. And, and here's, here's why I say that. Um, for an appendix or a colon or a small intestinal cancer, what we worry about is the lymph nodes nearby. We worry about spread to uh, liver or inside the abdominal cavity cavity. Mm -hmm. um, it can do that. It can spread to the, the surface lining of the bowel, for example. Mm -hmm. And a CT scan, for example, is actually somewhat more helpful. Mm -hmm. I can see along the bowel surface. I can start to see if there's little nodules. I can see really small things when they're just millimeters big in the liver. A PET scan, I think, gets um, 
a little bit misconstrued a little bit because a PET scan will detect sugar or activity. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about it, your bowel doesn't sit still. You might be laying very, very still in a PET machine mm -hmm. and the dye that we give you circulates through and it gets into that bowel. And all it takes is for your bowel to be squeezing and gurgling during the time that we're shooting the PET scan and the whole bowel will light up. Mm -hmm. I can't tell anything about the cancer. Mm -hmm. So not always is a PET scan the best test, mm -hmm. but sometimes we use them in different cancers, but more likely in an appendix, we want to know what type was it really high risk at the time that it was removed? And has there been some other good imaging like a CT or a mm -hmm. look around by a surgeon to see if it has spread anywhere? Yeah, good. Um, we had a question about bladder cancer and specifically how effective is BCG on bladder cancer? Now this is an interesting specific because this is a, an old treatment that's kind of stood the test of time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. BCG is still actually used by our urology colleagues to treat bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. um, it's more for the bladder cancers that are found early on, mm -hmm. um, that are really kind of superficial. If you think about the bladder as kind of this balloon, this muscular balloon, mm -hmm. we care you know, how deep the bladder cancer got into the wall. So if the bladder cancer is really superficial and has not even made it deep into the muscle layer, then a lot of times that patient doesn't even need to meet a patient or a doctor like me. They can be taken care of by the urologist to carve out that bladder cancer and instill a drug that tries to prevent a recurrence. Mm -hmm. So BCG has been used for decades and until we have something else that proves that it's better, it'll, it'll continue. Right. And the nice thing is it's not something that's given by IV to cause all those side effects, right? They actually put it in the bladder and just treat right it the at the surface, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. We, prostate cancer is obviously very common because we're getting a lot of questions about it. We had an emailer who asked, my husband has just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. A recent test shows it has not spread. So what is the best way to treat it? We've talked about, yeah. we've talked about not treating it um, with a prior right. question. So maybe an option depending on the specifics of this patient, what we call active surveillance. What are other options for treatment of localized prostate cancer? So I would ask um, or, or encourage that patient to ask their doctor about the Gleason score, mm -hmm. by the way. It, the Gleason score is just a, a, a label that we give a prostate cancer telling us underneath the microscope, how aggressive does that cancer look? So if it's a Gleason seven or above, that's something that we, we really should do something mm -hmm. about. And the something could be either surgery mm -hmm. to move the prostate cancer or radiation. Mm -hmm. And they both have their pluses and minuses. And to mm -hmm. be honest with you, I'm a strong believer that when we have options like that, that appear equal mm -hmm. in their success, that I think the patient should get a chance to visit with both the surgeon Mm -hmm. and the radiation doctor so mm -hmm. that they can decide which treatment is right for them. Mm -hmm. Good. So you have choices, which is a good thing. Um, an emailer asked, since the recommendation changed for colon cancer screening to start at 45, does screening for those with a family history change? How, do we bump that up even earlier yet? Or what is the recommendation for people with family history of colon cancer, Heidi? A lot of the guidelines will actually bump the, the screening for family history up to 40, I believe. Mm -hmm. but, but the old rule, and that still exists and is appropriate as well, is whenever that first degree family member of yours might have had colon or rectal cancer, then subtract 10 years, and that's when that patient's children should start to have sure. colonoscopy screening. So subtract 10 years or age 40, whatever's mm -hmm. earliest, that's when you should start the screening. Yeah, so the most, more specific you can be on that family history, the better. 
better for you, you to talk with your primary care doctor about. We had a caller who asked, my aunt is losing weight without trying. Could this be a sign of cancer? That's a hard one, but it is a, a red flex, you know, symptom mm -hmm. that we want you to bring up with your doctor. It could mm -hmm. be a lot of different yeah. things. It's been a stressful two years for yeah. our entire country, mm -hmm. but, but it could be a lot of different things. And so it's at least a symptom to bring forward. If you're losing weight unintentionally, mm -hmm. then I would visit with your doctor about that and see if there's a, a sign of something that needs to be worked up with blood work or imaging, sure. um, because I, I wouldn't ignore it. Yeah, yeah. I often will ask more specifics about nutrition because sometimes I, we just find that if you take a nutrition history, we find that people just aren't eating enough calories and that's a good explanation. But you want to dig for other symptoms if, to, to know if we should be more worried about that. Good. Thank you. Well, in our last minute, we had a couple um, comments. I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody's question. We had a comment from someone in Madison on Facebook. Someone hug Dr. Heidi. She is the best. <laughs> so you go tell your kids that now after the show, Heidi. <laughs> and then we had another comment from an emailer who said, I just wanted to share how thankful I still am for the care that Dr. McKean provided my father and our family. She has had such an impact on our lives. So our oncologist, you are so important to the patients that you treat. Um, you get to know them really well, um, and we're all very grateful for you. The Thank winner, you so much. That's very kind. Yeah. The winner of our drawing tonight is Susan from Pierre. Thank you, Susan, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. About a year ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Since that time, I've seen many doctors and have been through a variety of treatments. At some point, it was recommended that I go to the Mayo Clinic. Your particular tumor was actually a very rare subtype. It's actually a mixed tumor between a neuroendocrine carcinoma and an acinar cell carcinoma. So a, a bit unusual, but still, you know, pancreas cancer. I've been called unusual my whole yeah. life. <laughs> cancer is a broad term which encompasses many different diseases, and each type of cancer has different patterns and tendencies. But at its core, cancer means a group of cells which is growing uncontrollably due to one or multiple genetic mutations. Cancer prevention is a topic we see frequently in the media, and it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. Truthfully, many cancers occur at random, and even modern science does not yield any clues as to how to prevent such cancers. Supplements and products marketed as cancer prevention may not have sound medical data, and I would advise skepticism of any product purporting to cleanse or detox. However, there are environmental factors that increase the risk of many cancers. Let's focus on those. Smoking increases the risk of cancer, not just lung, but also bladder, kidney, cervical, and numerous other types of malignant tumors. Additionally, chewing tobacco significantly increases the risk of head and neck cancers. Quitting tobacco is the most impactful lifestyle change one can make to reduce their lifetime cancer risk. Sun protection is essential for reducing the risk of most skin cancers, including melanoma and the more common basal or squamous cell cancers. Experts recommend sun avoidance, protective clothing, and use of sunscreen with SPF 30 or greater when out in the sun. 
Human papillomavirus is a common virus, which increases risk of cervical, penile, and many head and neck cancers. We have highly effective vaccines, which can prevent this cancer-causing virus. The first vaccine is recommended at age 11 or 12, as it is most effective when administered in adolescence. But the vaccines are approved up to age 45. Other components of a healthy lifestyle, including a healthy diet, exercise, and lowering alcohol intake can also reduce your lifetime cancer risk. Most importantly, have a yearly conversation with your primary care provider about age-appropriate cancer screening. In rare cases, a strong family history of cancer may warrant genetic counseling, as some inherited abnormalities merit more aggressive cancer screening. Thus, providing a thorough family history to your care provider is crucial too. In summary, though many cancers appear out of sheer bad luck, there are many things one can do to reduce overall risk of cancer. None of those things, including spending money on products touted as antioxidant, detoxifying, or cleansing. So my advice, save your money and focus on the data-driven recommendations. A big thank you to Dr. McKean for volunteering her time to help us learn more about cancer facts and how they can help us overcome our fears. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, as we celebrate our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. We all want our friends, neighbors, and fellow South Dakotans to have the ability to make appropriate decisions about their health care. To do so, they need access to information from reliable sources, like our Prairie Docs and their guests. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. This year, we celebrate the 20th season of Prairie Dog programs, which are so helpful and important for all of us, especially for those who choose to live in more rural communities in South Dakota and neighboring states. Truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20 seasons and beyond. We can do it with your help. Please consider a personal or corporate gift. Go to prairiedoc.org and click on the donate button today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. 
Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tail Communications.